0: This is Pop Psych 101.
1: Welcome back to Pop Psych 101. I am licensed therapist Ryan Engelstad here with our guest host, Christine from Antidote's Stories in Medicine podcast. Christine, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
1: So, Christine, as as you know, our audience doesn't know, but um, you're joining us today. Mike has been going through a, a little bit of a struggle, so we asked you to come join us obviously as as the audience is going to learn you have some um some work experience with the topic that we're going to be talking about today mm-hmm. but i did want to give a shout out to mike who's recovering and just acknowledge that he will join us for next week's episode
2: i have big shoes to fill
1: <laughs> and and we appreciate you coming on you've been with us before and yeah. and we thought that you know this topic that we're going to be covering today which is the movie welcome to marwin Based on the true story of, I guess, the documentary, which is called Marwin Call and the real life person, Mark Hogan camp. This is his story. So it's going to it's not going to be a surprise to people that we rate this pretty highly because it's based on a real person's story. It's going to be some interesting discussion around the accurateness of his how the fictional fictionalized version of the movie portrays it. But I think we'll get into all that as we go. So, Christine, before we do that, though, I wanted to just give you an opportunity to maybe share with our listeners a, a reminder what your, your <laughs> show is all about.
2: Yeah. So I was on the episode that was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest beforehand. Yes. Way back in the day. It feels like so long ago when we started podcasting because... I know. My podcast started right around the same time yours did, and it's Antidote Stories in Medicine. And I'm a nurse practitioner. I used to be an EMS. We talk with people from all over the world, all different types of healthcare specialties, and just hear their stories. And I like to hear stories and just chat about things. So that's the podcast. It's way more interesting than that description, I swear. Or sometimes it is.
1: <laughs> and it is available everywhere podcasts can be found. Yeah. Awesome. So, so if you haven't already, please check out Christine's uh, podcast, Antidotes: Stories in Medicine. So, Christine usually, Mike and I do a little bit of and upfront just sort of discussion things that are in the news and I have bookmarked an article for myself and, and you and I were talking before we started mm-hmm. recording about imposter syndrome yeah and there was an article in the New York Times and well it hit my Twitter feed I want to say yesterday so let's just say it's very current I don't have the date in front of me the title is how to overcome imposter syndrome so you know creatives this is not something that's specific to creatives you know as you and I acknowledge medical professionals I think people are accusing millennials in general of sort of generally suffering from imposter syndrome to a great deal. Mm -hmm. But it's an interesting it's an interesting topic. And I thought we could just talk about it briefly because it's something that's in the news. So what's your experience with imposter syndrome, either professionally or, or personally, if any?
2: Oh, I think everyone that goes into pretty much any career, especially a high pressured one and you first graduate and you're like, how are they letting me do this? So obviously being an EMS, being a nurse, then being an NP. And I'm like, All of these people are way more experienced than I am and way smarter than I am. Like, what the hell am I doing here? Or yeah, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, you just you feel like you're completely, you know, insufficiently trained. You're not as good as everyone else. And you feel like you're kind of wearing this mask that someone's going to rip off any time when the right questions asked. So it's a little bit unsettling, but eventually you get your groove, hopefully.
1: Yeah, that's that's such a great description. You know, the the sort of feeling of wearing a mask that like if only someone saw you know, how how good I really am at my job or how good I really am or how not good.
2: Or how not good I feel. Yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly. That that I would be sort of found out. I would be seen as this imposter.
2: Right. That fake it till you make it feeling.
1: Yeah. And it's so <laughs> funny. I don't know, I don't know if it's if you've had this experience, but as I've, I guess, become more experienced in my field as a therapist, you start to work with people who are just coming into the field. Mm-hmm. So whether that's interns or people just starting out you start to realize like, oh, yeah, no, I know a lot more than they do. Yes. And it's not, not not any fault of their own, but it's just that's what experience looks like.
2: Right. And then you also realize, oh, I went through that same imposter syndrome or they don't know the answer to this. And I also don't know the answer to this. But I much more confidently can say, I don't know the answer to this. And I'm OK with that. You learn that it's OK to not know everything. Oh, for sure. And like and and just say to patients, oh, that's a really great question. We're going to look at that up or we're going to get to the bottom of that. And you can say that jokingly and confidently as opposed to someone that's new is like, uh, and they try and make something up and it doesn't go so well.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, or or even just if you don't know the answer to something, having the confidence of knowing how to find the answer. Because I think so so often, that's what overcoming the imposter syndrome looks like is that even when we feel sort of unsure of ourselves, the experience we have allows us to solve the problem, in essence, to sort of work through it. Right. And I think that's that's what, you know, a, an adult professional looks like, even if we feel <laughs> sort of uh, insufficient on the inside. Yeah. But yeah, so this article identified a couple coping skills or, or uh, strategies people can use. So I wanted to share that with um, with you and with our audience to see what you think. Oh, cool. It has a whole section on psyching yourself up and the sort of idea being that you can actually change the way you see yourself by doing some of these taking some of these steps. So one is actually just saying your name aloud, and saying a positive affirmation. So something like, I'm helpful, and then adding my name to it. So not saying, um, like, not saying what I just said which is I'm helpful, but Ryan is helpful. <laughs> so it, it's sort of like depersonalizing it. So being able to see myself from a distance. And I think when I do that, and it's interesting, because I've had this experience, I don't know if you have, but when you talk to audiences who are not in your uh field but you're you're just doing a presentation or you're talking to let's say a community mm-hmm. it's really it's it's so much easier to sound professional because everyone's just nodding like you know exactly what you're talking about. So it feels great. <laughs>
2: yes, that's been
1: my experience at least.
2: <laughs> no one challenges you. It's the yeah. I have could say whatever sense. I
1: wanted, and they're just like, "Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's I used that's a lot right. of big
2: words. That mm-hmm. was fantastic.
1: <laughs> yeah. So in that sense, you're also sort of owning your accomplishments, even just being able to say like, "I've been ten years in the field. People are going to say that 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 comes with a certain amount of expertise, right? Right. Yeah, so it's that and then you know the sort of the fighting back the imposter feelings, you know, some of the skills they talk about talking to colleagues or friends, which we just talked about, you know, talking to people who are earlier in the field, you can kind of get that that adjustment of actually where you stand within the the sort of context. And yeah, and really just reminding yourself that you're good at what you do, reminding yourself the skills that you've obtained, whether that's through trainings or the type of clientele maybe that you work with, this is just maybe for you and I, but you know, the type of patients that I've taken on this week are are much different than the ones I would have taken on when I first started in the field. So, right. so by by pointing that out to myself, I can say, oh, okay, well, there, if I'm able to do that, there's a reason that I'm able to do that. Yeah. Making that more broadly uh, accessible for other people. You know, if you've been in a, any field for any length of time, chances are you can do things today that you couldn't. Uh, weeks or months or years ago so reinforcing those those realities for yourself can be really useful
2: and regardless of the time that you spend in the job you got yourself in that room so that's right that is a testament to you and you alone unless of course someone hired you because they paid a lot of money well, and your dad got well, your job yeah, but still, yeah. so- <laughs> still you can win them over <laughs> that's right
1: that's right. It's it's funny because I think we have sometimes this is imposter experiences are based in yeah. stuff like what you just said. Like, oh, well, you know, when I was 16, my mom like talked to my local grocery store and convinced them to give me a job or else she would go take her grocery shopping somewhere else. And that's why I'm a therapist now is because that's where it started. And it's like, no, actually, a lot of stuff has happened in between now and then. So <laughs> just kind of give yourself <laughs> some credit for for getting to where you've gotten.
2: grocery store has an amazing therapy program
1: (laughs) yeah you would you would think so but yeah so so hopefully that's useful for people check out the article if you're interested in and with that let's get into today's topic welcome to marwin
0: mr hogan camp please address the court when you're ready i was a hell of a good artist an illustrator I love to draw, and now I can barely write my name. The life I once had has been taken away from me forever. I was not wearing high heels the night I got jumped, Your Honor. But I did mention that on occasion, I might try them on. And because I made that comment, <clears throat> they beat me severely. They jumped me from behind and kicked every memory I ever had out of my head. Now, I admit that I had been drinking and I was drunk and the way I responded wasn't smart, but now I know I—I I know what I should have done, I should have Kept my mouth shut and walked away but I didn't and I got beaten beaten within an inch of my life beaten for no reason and I needed you to know that your honor because whatever sentence you decide to give these so-called people. I want them to know they can't hurt me anymore. They can't hurt me anymore because they're gone. They're gone for good, but I'm still here. And I have my friends. And I have my town. And I have my pictures. And I'll be okay.
1: When a devastating attack shatters Mark Hogan camp and wipes away all memories, no one expected recovery. Putting together pieces from his old and new life, Mark meticulously creates a wondrous town where he can heal and be heroic. As he builds an astonishing art installation, a testament to the most powerful women he knows, through his fantasy world he draws strength to triumph in the real one. In a bold, wondrous, and timely film, Welcome to Marwin shows that when your only weapon is your imagination, you'll find courage in the most unexpected place. So, Christine, today we're talking about Welcome to Marwin," the 2018, I guess, drama slash fantasy film starring Steve Carell as Mark Hogan camp and a host of other actors and actresses as his supporting cast that we'll get into probably one at a time here and there. So fascinating movie. Yes. For both of us, because we, we both work with people in different contexts who have dealt with PTSD. Mm hmm. And we are talking about Mark Hogan camp, who they don't actually open on his trauma. They open. They just kind of immediately come into this uh, art installation setup that he has in his uh, sort of his side yard.
2: Yeah. And I think they probably don't go into I mean, they explain his trauma, but they don't show it for a while. Because I yeah. don't think he remembers it. Like they don't totally
1: fair. Yeah, I
2: think it's this very like scary hovering thing in the movie, even from the beginning, because that's how it feels to him. And so I thought that was really well done.
1: Absolutely. So you you kind of join Mark halfway through because that's where what his experience is after he is he experiences this assault. So to to sort of take a step back, Mark Camp is assaulted by a group of five men. Now in the movie, um, and this is the sort of uh, fictionalized version of the story. We'll we'll periodically share the true to life uh, version of the events as well. But in the in the movie, Welcome to Marwin, um, Mark is assaulted by five neo Nazis when they find out at a bar that Mark admits to being a cross-dresser, that he wears primarily um, women's shoes. Yes. So in the in the true to life version, in 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 reality the people who assaulted Mark were not neo-Nazis. They were just guys in town at the town bar. So some of this was, uh, I would say, traumatized for effect. Yeah. Not to take away the very real trauma that he had, because they put him in the hospital. I think he was in a coma for nine days. Wow. Yeah.
2: And he had to learn to walk again. There's that scene. Yes. Yeah.
1: He lost uh, a significant portion of his memory. Yeah. He... He lost, I, I believe, he lost the ability to draw, which was a, a big passion of his.
2: I think it was also his profession prior.
1: Uh, yes, yes. Actually, you're right about that. Yeah, he did, like, illustration and, and things for yeah. books and things like that. Yeah. So, you know, his his whole personality was he kind of had to rebuild himself in more ways than one. So as we see him go through this experience, we sort of joining him halfway. You know, we see that he's sort of doing these... um sort of set up scenes that he's both enacting and photographing. And the scenes involve women from the fictional town of Marwin, which I believe stands for Mark and Wendy. Uh, Mark obviously being Mark Hogan camp and Wendy being the woman uh, who was the bartender at the bar who essentially saved him or discovered him.
2: Yeah. I think she saw him him outside and there's a line of like, Oh, she thought you were a trash bag, but then you moved. And so she called 911. She saved him, but she didn't like fight off the neo Nazis right. or
1: Yeah. So he's just he's created this fictional uh Belgian town, I think, of Marwin. Yeah. And and in this town live five fictionalized versions of women who have been important to him in his life. And then a sixth woman who's like a witch. This this part I did.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That was a little bit like a, an inner demon that would sometimes come up and like mess with things when the town was going well, but I don't know like what she associated with. I don't I'm not sure concretely who she was.
1: And right. I, I was expecting almost that it was going to be alluded to that like that was Mark's um like memories of his ex-wife because he is divorced. Yeah. But that was not that was not a connection that was made and and that did not appear to be the case. But but yeah, each woman sort of represented a different person. So there was the Oh, my goodness. A great cast. It, it really brings the movie to life. I mean, it's difficult to be with Mark as he kind of lives in this fictional universe, but the women both in their sort of fictionalized doll form and the real women are, I think, their own inspiration in this movie as they see you see them really being empathic towards him.
2: The town was amazingly empathic towards him. I was expecting them to kind of ridicule him for having the dolls and everything. And everyone was extremely supportive and asking him about what's going on in the town and like recognizing that this is his self-therapy, as you'd mentioned off mic. And it was really, I was really surprised. I think the fact that he was kind of an artist, eccentric type beforehand kind of helped And again, not to say that there should be any typing of who should play with dolls and have miniature things. But I think if he made a dramatic shift in their view from being, you know, a a bartender to suddenly having this fictional village where these whole things happen, like, I think that would be a little bit harder for them to swallow. But I think because he was an artist and drawing kind of fanciful things beforehand, they kind of got him and then they sympathized with him.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, so I have the cast here, the incredible cast. We have Merritt Weaver, who played Roberta. She was the woman who works in the like town hobby shop that Mark obviously frequents to get new characters and supplies for Marwin.
2: I love everything she's in. She's so good. <laughs> uh,
1: she, yeah. She, you know, she is a great character because she's, I think, seeing him create this town and they're equally supportive, obviously, but it really seems like she's hundred percent uh you know supportive of, of his creation of his art really. Yeah. Um then we have Gwendolyn Christie, probably more popularly known to people as Brienne of Tarth. Yeah. From Game of Thrones. Uh she plays Anna. Anna is um, I believe sort of like a, a visiting nurse, a visiting tech.
2: Yeah, like a home health aid type.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then we have Janelle Monet who plays G.I. Julie. <laughs> she was a physical therapist uh, or physical therapist aide that helped Mark in his immediate recovery. Um, we don't see her. I don't know that he's necessarily presently working with her, but she was instrumental, it looked like, in helping him relearn to walk. Yeah. Then we have—I'm going to butcher her name—and I apologize. It looks like Isa Gonzalez, who plays. I want to say it's Carlala or call it Carla. And then we have Leslie Zemeckis, who plays Suzette, and Stephanie Von Fetten, who plays Wendy.
2: Who we don't really see that much.
1: Who we don't see that much, right? So some of these women we don't necessarily get the backstory of. Yeah. And then we have Leslie Mann, who plays Nicole, who is the newest member, or newest, I should say, woman of Marwin, because she is the neighbor that moves in across the street from Mark. Yeah. So we we meet... Most of these women in sort of these first fictionalized scenes, I mean, you start to get the sense of this universe that Mark has created for himself and why he creates the scenes that he does. You know, before we find out what the trauma is that Mark experienced, you're sort of half expecting that Mark was a veteran. And as you and I discussed, and I found out, that's actually not the case. Mark is not a veteran, but he creates this fictionalized version of himself, Hoagie, that is a character of marwin and they all fight nazis together
2: yeah see i didn't think he was a veteran when i was watching it because just the way he was portraying the town it was just this it it was like a glorified view of veterans and the greatest generation and everything like that so it was like it it didn't seem like a very realistic one just it was very fanciful i mean the whole thing is obviously very fanciful but if he was a veteran himself i think that would be not the case <laughs> but it's a it's harkening back to like all these old movies of mm-hmm. you fight the bad guy the bad guys the nazis you know and then he's got his troop of you know, different women that are you know h- helping him out do that
1: right so essentially that it, it wasn't really based in any um i don't want to say it wasn't based in reality but it was based in this like very fictionalized version of what people think about war especially world war ii obviously. yeah
2: i think it's like the old western kind of
1: yes yes
2: you know playbook too he just chose mm-hmm. germany and some super dashing kind of uh army captain that's like version of
1: himself yeah, yeah like a,
2: be- a better more confident version of himself that mm-hmm. would be in a movie which I think we've all done.
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, playing soldiers or playing war when you're a kid, I think that is that sort of same idea of like, it's fun to feel powerful and it's fun to to kind of have this almost like pseudo play therapy. And we're going to talk about all the different sort of uh, pseudo therapy that Mark is giving himself through this essentially play and, and yeah. art that he creates. Because the sort of sad part of the story, one of the saddest parts of the story was for me that... He's not getting any sort of formal therapy for his clear yeah. PTSD.
2: The nurse practitioner and me sees him taking these pills that it's once a day and he's taking 3 or more of them and I'm like, "Oh my god, stop." Like more isn't better. More can make you feel really terrible. Um who's monitoring this?
1: Right, <laughs> like, right. The right. whole health day
2: is just like dropping off these pills and someone just keeps refilling them even though he's taking way too many. It's like that's not a good clinical relationship that he's getting all these refills and he's allowing to do this from a prescriber. Like obviously, there's some sort of care involved. Mm-hmm. What's up with that?
1: <laughs> right, right. Because if he's getting these pills either uh, from Anna, his home health aide, or from some doctor, where is the follow up? Where is the discussion around? You know, okay, h- how's this medication working? Yeah. What symptoms are you still experiencing? There's obviously a lot of things going on for Mark that I think personally, you know, for we're, we're sort of treating his PTSD, we're not seeing that sort of treatment follow up, you know, yeah, because and and you can probably speak to this, but even if you're just getting medication, which unfortunately some people that's all they can get, there's going to be some discussion around the medication's effectiveness and symptoms and things like that,
2: also, I'm not refilling your medication if you're taking three times the the amount and you're that early, like you're coming in and we're going to see like, I need to adjust doses or a medication that's better for you or, you know, enhance your care in some way. She says that she's coming in every month and I I would be seeing him at least every month in the office, not letting him go for months at a time. Now, if this was a va service i'd be like well maybe there's really bad appointments and Mm, that's something that's a challenge with that system but he's not so it's like what's up with this and who's giving them the meds and letting him kind of get away with this that's not responsible prescribing
1: absolutely and you know so the the sort of apparent story around why he did not get more specific treatment for his ptsd was that i guess his insurance essentially didn't cover it whatever insurance he has and obviously, he's his only job that we see is is maybe part time at the bar. Yeah. So it's possible that he doesn't have insurance at all, or maybe he's just on disability. Right. But suffice it to say, it doesn't look like his his insurance covers any more intensive therapy, and that's problematic, you know, for someone with his level of symptoms. Not 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 even speaking of the the memory issues, but you know, he's obviously having flashbacks. He's having difficulty sleeping. It wasn't even really clear to me. Maybe you picked up on something, what the medication was supposed to be or what it was specifically prescribed for.
2: I don't know. I'm thinking it's maybe more of like my guess would be a a benzo for anxiety because that would be the only thing you would take multiple times a day. Right. To overdose yourself. And they're like, no, no, no. She said it's addictive. You don't want to be on this. So I'm guessing it's some kind of like Valium or Clonopin or something. Yep. And when he's stressed out, he's taking more of it.
1: And and sometimes he takes more because the the witch tells him to, like sets out a couple more pills for him, right? In his, you know, I don't know that he's necessarily hallucinating these things. It feels like more of a visualization, but but something's happening that the the visualization of the, the Belgian the Mar witch of Marwin is just sort of telling him to take more of his medication, and he does.
2: I mean, you can have dissociations in PTSD, of course, as you know. But I'm, and maybe that's just because of his very artistic sort of thought processes, anyways. That that is manifesting with the the witch. The witch thing is really odd, and I couldn't place it.
1: The whole movie, right? Sort of how that intersects with everything. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it was interesting, and and to go a little bit deeper into Mark's sort of, I guess, psychological presentation. You know, he talks uh, with some of the women in town and I should say in real life about how Hoagie never really gets to be happy. Like he never gets to to kiss the girl essentially because his happiness doesn't get to last. There's one scene um, that he plays out where a milkmaid is entering Marwin that he has rescued and the Nazis come in and kill her, kill the doll version of the milkmaid. Yeah. And, and this, the, the way that Mark sort of, I guess, rationalizes this story is that he doesn't get to have people in his life. He doesn't get to have sort of good things happen. It's all just sort of maintenance of his new lifestyle with these women that have helped him get to his point to his point that he has gotten to.
2: And that's another classic presentation of PTSD. You know, people kind of confuse it with anxiety and depression. And while they can be comorbidities, PTSD is not in itself being afraid of everything for for every person, but it is this kind of I'm not worthy or very dampened moods, flattened affect, like angry at things, or just like, I don't deserve happiness. Like this isn't mm-hmm. gonna happen to me. And and you see that manifested through that the doll of and they can be very violent uh, ideas because that's what you've been exposed to. Yeah. Of course, everyone's manifestation is different depending on your traumas and who you are. But that's one of the DSM.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, I appreciate you sharing that because, you know, Mark does have some very clear, you know, DSM appropriate symptoms when it comes yeah. to PTSD. Um, yeah, he he has flashbacks. He has some clear triggering incidents throughout the movie, whether it's the the Nazi doll or the so Leslie Mann's character, Nicole, um, after she moves in, Mark also meets her, I guess it's her ex-boyfriend who just like still yeah. comes around. I don't think he's necessarily like a Nazi or a neo-Nazi, but when he meets Mark, he sees Mark has the little um like army truck of people and he sees some Nazi, uh, I guess paraphernalia amongst Mark's art uh installation. So he gives Mark the the Nazi salute and I think the um some uh, Nazi words uh, and Mark uh, has that sort of very classic triggering episode.
2: Yeah. And he also shows avoidance um, disrupted sleep. I mean, the big avoidance is the court case, not wanting to face the offenders. I don't know if we want to jump ahead to that, but it's, that is a very distinctive symptom of it. You know, I'm, I'm okay if I'm not presented with the thing that is triggering of my trauma.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So actually, let's let's jump ahead, jump ahead to that, because so we have this sort of fictionalized thing that's going on for Mark that's, to a certain degree, how he's coping with the world. But then we have what's actually going on in the real world for Mark, which is that his attorney is sort of pressuring him to confront his attackers in court so mm-hmm. that they will be given an appropriate sentence. Essentially, he's worried that if Mark doesn't appear in court... They might be getting a a lighter sentence or no sentence at all. It's sort of unclear what the result of that would be if he doesn't appear. But
2: I think he was. They had already been convicted, and then it was the sentencing. So they wanted a victim impact statement so the judge would instill the harsher end of the penalty. And so it was really difficult for him to to show up. And he was very triggered the first time. And he had to leave the courtroom. And he had a little bit of a dissociative. Flashbacky kind of because his, his are kind of mixed in symptom of just panic and he left and so they adjourned for the next day or a couple of days later
1: yeah so and you've mentioned dissociation a couple of times and that was one of the clearest examples of it where you know cause it's kind of hard to tell when he's in his marwin mode right how if if what is what's visualization what's just sort of focus on the photography and what's dissociation because there right. are instances where he's talking to his action figure. He's talking to Hoagie and he's seeing Hoagie even sometimes as like a life-size person, you know, sitting next to him in court. So I wondered if you could maybe speak to dissociation a little bit and how they present it in this movie versus maybe what your experience with working with veterans has been.
2: So in the movie, they show him kind of dissociating when they're like, you need to come up and speak. And he Believes he's being shot at by the Germans, I believe it is. And so yep. he no longer believes that he is there. That he's in um, court. Yeah. He doesn't believe he's in court, correct. And that he is trying to fight his way out of this Nazi gun battle. And he's got to get out of the room. And that's that's his like survival mode dissociation. Dissociation can be a lot of things for a bunch of different people. It's not... I think people think of dissociative identity disorder, which is very different. Right. Um, This is more like all of a sudden something triggers you that in the moment you feel like you are not where you are. You feel like you're back where the trauma happened. You may smell something. You may just get this overwhelming feeling that you are the person you were at the time of the trauma. And it's just this very eerie, uneasy feeling. Um, Certain noises may trigger you to think, oh my God, it's happening again. Um, and you kind of dissociate that. And it, and it may only be for like a couple of seconds that you were right back there again. And so it's not necessarily as prolonged as his is, but as long as you're having that acute stress reaction, like in the moment you can dissociate for brief or longer periods of time. It's not usually as dramatic is that (laughs) right
1: and i think i think that's where maybe my confusion with whether or not he was a veteran was coming in because his dissociations were the type of dissociations someone who had been in battle would have where you're getting fired at you know you're you're hearing things you're feeling like you have to to army crawl out of a, a courtroom and again as far as we know he was not a veteran those battle experiences are not things that he has had you know his PTSD uh, event was being assaulted and obviously that came with a lot of violence on its own. I don't want to downplay that, but I guess that's where it was this sort of interesting merging of his I guess like his artistic experiences and and perhaps his viewpoint and the actual trauma that he experienced So that was really interesting
2: yeah and I feel like that dissociation into Marwin was almost a comfort mechanism like it's okay for him to run away when he's being shot at by Nazis like that's an okay escape route that's a heroic way of exiting the building oh yeah yeah but for him to just freak out and leave when he's supposed to be giving a speech that's not very heroic that's not him and he, but he needs to get out of there and so his brain kind of just goes we're going to Marwin and we're getting out of here
1: yeah that's a really good point because you know, and I think, and this is where I where I started to think about his creation of Marwin as his like self therapy experience because creating Marwin for him did enable him to see himself as a hero and to see himself as capable, see himself as as strong, as resilient, as all these sorts of things that are difficult sometimes for people with PTSD who can feel like everything is a threat, everything is a uh, danger. They can there can be feelings as a weakness
2: or feeling like you don't belong and clearly he belongs in Marwin.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well said and and in his actual town, which I don't have the name of in front of me, but there is clearly this feeling of being an outcast. You know, he's kind of comfortable in his bar, but basically he he walks everywhere bringing his his army truck as a literal security blanket. Um, now, he he kind of says he brings it around that he can kind of get the right wear on its tires. Yeah. But it's pretty clear that he wants that. He wants the dolls with him. Yeah, yeah. So he's got these sort of security aspects to his symptoms that I thought was was interesting to observe as well. So, you know, for me as a therapist, looking at the, you know, looking at Marwin and looking at the sort of work that he was doing and creating these narratives for himself, it reminded me of a couple different forms of therapy. And I, I wonder... Maybe what experiences you have in, in working with your patients, if any, um, one being exposure therapy or or to a certain extent, prolonged exposure therapy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's obviously an intense one. While Mark doesn't necessarily provide himself with specifically exposure to his, you know, trauma, um, he does do this sort of like parallel processing, which I thought was really interesting.
2: It's really Interesting how he kind of will have a stressor throughout the day, and then that will manifest itself into Marwin. And so he is slowing it down, literally frame by frame, and then seeing it play out, but he is in control of it. So it's write your own ending, and he gets to do that with Marwin.
1: Yeah. So that's kind of um, a little bit of exposure therapy, a little bit of narrative therapy, where, you know, the sort of goal being to sort of reinstitute how you see yourself. Um, in the context of whatever trauma or story you've experienced. And it it reminded me of, there was actually a great special on prolonged exposure therapy. This is a couple of years ago with, I believe, an Afghanistan veterans who were in, I think, a six or eight week inpatient program. And part of the prolonged exposure therapy was literally just telling their story over and over and over again. And then listening to the recording of them telling that story. So it both sort of desensitizes them to their own framework of what happened to them and then also sort of helps them separate it yeah. as someone else telling the story and and it not being so threatening when they listen to themselves say it. So I thought there were aspects of that with what Mark was doing.
2: Yeah. And it's sometimes not as threatening when you verbalize it. Right. That That story that's in your head of something that's very traumatic, when it comes out, it is either justified that it was traumatic and that you can feel this way and be upset about it or you realize that you're okay and nothing else happened from it and that you can move on and and by sharing that story or commiserating with someone else that's had a similar experience it can be extremely therapeutic and having worked in EMS obviously we see a lot of we used to see a lot of traumatic things and sitting around at the base afterwards sharing our war stories of like Mm. oh my god man did you see what i did today like i worked this call and like other people are like oh yeah that's crazy like well this time i did this and it it always would escalate because that's how those things go but it was
1: yeah yeah really
2: therapeutic like okay i'm not the only one that was like this is messed up and this is my life so it's very helpful to retell those stories
1: yeah, and so the context that you're talking about is almost like that group therapy model, which was something in the in the 60 Minute Special as well, where the veterans were telling their stories to other veterans. Yeah. And it's interesting because Mark sort of does that in, in person at times with the the various women of Marwin.
2: Yeah, he tells Marwin to them and they're very supportive of it.
1: And so, right, so so there's also this aspect of this movie that's the sort of pseudo-romantic side where he falls in love with his neighbor, Nicole, which
2: was really creepy.
1: <laughs> yes, totally fair.
0: <laughs>
2: I was like so uncomfortable with that. I was like, oh, like I get we're supposed to like him. But this is su- if I move next to that guy, I would be so weirded out and not necessarily initially because she's very kind and understanding. Yeah. But then he proposes to her after not knowing her for like a couple weeks. And it's like, woo red flags. <laughs>
1: So yeah, so let's lay out the sort of progression of this pseudo relationship, (laughs) right? So Nicole moves in across the street. Um, Mark sees her, and before even talking to her, he immediately buys a doll that looks like her. He has not had a conversation with her, but wants to have a doll that represents her based on face alone in Marwin.
2: Which initially I was like, okay, maybe that's not creepy. No, okay, I
1: mean, I guess, yeah, because
2: maybe that's just like everyone in his world has a role. But then you kind of find out that not everyone, like the old man behind the bar, doesn't really exist in Marwin.
1: Yeah. So I guess the reason it felt creepy to me was that all of the other women had uh, real life previous experience with Mark that clearly was like, okay, Mark has relationships with these women. They all, as far as we can tell, know that they're represented in the town.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: And and they're not put off by it. It's basically just like, I think what the the one yeah. woman that works at the bar is just like, well, do I get a date? Do I get a guy in Marwin?
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And like, they're very playful with it. And I think that's very helpful and validating for Mark. But with Nicole, it's just, oh, you know, I, I see a, a pretty girl and now I want to enact interactions with her in my fictional town so that uh, that's why it came Which across is, it's yeah. very
2: creepy because i mean we're, we're just not used to that kind of infatuation with a stranger but at the same time like if you had a neighbor that moved in that you had a crush on in your head you're thinking that's true. of all these scenarios of like oh what if i ask her out on a date and i do all these things he is just acting that's his version out of
1: that yeah in
2: marwin and it's just very strange to see it because I think we're not used to seeing it. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll reserve my judgment for that, but still it's but then he starts acting on it.
1: So yes. So yeah.
2: <laughs> That's a no-go.
1: <laughs> so he brings uh, Nicole, the the character into Marwin. And I think, you know, I guess one of the debates I've had with talking with people is is does Nicole, the real life Nicole, sort of lead him on? Because she asks Mark, you know, when she sees the obvious representation of herself, you know, in Marwin, you know, oh, what's happening? Basically like asking Mark to tell the story of why she's there. And, and he tells this sort of like very romantic story.
2: Yeah. I don't know. I would, if I saw myself as a doll in someone's house. Yeah. I would definitely play the, I'm going to be very nice because I'm very threatened and I don't want to, like, I don't want to trigger this weirdo. and, And I'm not, trying to place judgment on him and his condition. I'm saying like, if that was, and I didn't know the story and that was like my neighbor that was doing, it, I was like, whoa. Yeah, of course. I, I would want to be like, Hey, I should be nice to this guy because I don't know what's going to happen. Especially where she had that abusive ish, very yes. domineering ex boyfriend. Like, okay, this guy seems harmless. He's not like that one, but this is odd. Also. I, th- I think she thinks he's gay. Because they're talking about the shoes and the the shoes
1: thing, yeah. And the
2: hate, she goes, "That's a hate crime." And so I think she's like, "Well, this is just the guy with a head injury that's gay, and he's playing out this fantasy."
1: Yeah, so I think you're totally right. I I don't think I don't think she is leading him on. I think she's trying to be nice. She knows he was assaulted. Yeah. Um, and, and she, I think you're right, doesn't see him as a threat. More of just, oh, like this is my neighbor. I should know who he is. I should get to know him. She's obviously, you know, to a certain degree, flattered that yeah. she's included in Marwin and, and is interested, like takes an interest in her inclusion.
2: People don't know how to react to someone right. with PTSD. Absolutely. So I can't really blame any of her interactions for his behaviors that are outside of the, I'm going to say norm, but, you know, sure. the average, you know, non-PTSD behaviors. Mm-hmm. So she's trying to go, okay, well how do i navigate that and there's plenty of us out in the world that are just really nice when things are weird and we're sure. uncomfortable
1: yeah absolutely and that and that's why i think you know it's it's sort of sad to see mark yeah. sort of gradually escalate his uh, fantasy interactions with nicole to then being real life attempted interactions with nicole yeah so you know he starts out as just nicole the doll is the sort of uh, love interest of Hoagie, the doll, it sort of escalates to the point where uh, real life Mark um builds, <laughs> this is gonna start to sound confusing, builds doll Nicole uh, a, a tea house because real life Nicole always wanted a tea house. So it's like, okay, now the two worlds are melding.
2: Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. That's all
1: right. If it wasn't, and then, yeah, and then it goes before. Yeah, and then it grows from there to Hoagie. Mark's doll, uh, proposing to Nicole's doll uh, with a very uh, small, fake purple heart. And then when Mark retells this story to Nicole, he then enacts the same thing in real life. He proposes to Nicole and Nicole, I think, realizing that Mark has misinterpreted their uh, neighborly friendship, sort of tries to find the best way that she can to establish a comfortable boundary with someone who she also wants to be empathetic towards.
2: Yeah. And she gave him a bunch of shoes, her old shoes. So I think she she was not looking at him like a romantic partner. That is not a typical gesture of a heterosexual couple. Absolutely fair. So I think that is a very clear sign that she's like, oh, this is, you know, my neighbor who has been through something tough and I'm trying to be nice, but not like, Hey, here's some roses or you know, whatever.
1: Yeah, and so to to spend just a minute on the the shoes and the cross dressing cuz I do think that that's an important part of of Mark. Yeah. And so Mark collects women's shoes.
2: And he did this before the accident?
1: Yes, this is something that he has done. This is not something that changed after his trauma. In fact, he asks there's a story where he asks a friend when he sort of discovers the shoes after he comes out of his coma, he asks, oh, do I have a, a girlfriend? And the friend's just like, no, man, they're yours. It's, we just don't, it's just not a big deal. Like, so then Mark sort of rediscovers this aspect of his personality where he likes women's shoes and this is true to real life Mark Hogankamp as well, that he wears women's shoes and I believe women's skirts is sort of um, how he identifies as sort of his cross-dressing. And that's you know, obviously part, the main part of why he was assaulted, but this is also just part of who he is in general. So as he describes it to Nicole, he likes to wear the shoes and presumably any other clothes to get a woman's essence. Yeah. So I think Nicole, again, responds very empathetically to that statement, which she could be she'd be forgiven if she was put off or, or confused by that. She empathizes with him, I think, because her brother, she says, sort of had some similar tendencies. Yeah, Um, at least growing up. So she doesn't really make a big deal out of it, which I think is very validating to Mark. And as you mentioned, she ends up giving him a lot of her shoes as well. So we have this aspect of Mark's uh, personality, which, you know, outside of his relationship with Nicole, it doesn't go too deep into. And, you know, as far as its, its relevance to his PTSD, you know, the the doll version of Mark Hoagie, also wears women's shoes. It's not a big deal in Marwin, as we would expect. And that's sort of it. It's, it's basically, it's a reality for this person. And obviously, it's an aspect of why he was assaulted. But other than that, it's it's treated very nonchalantly, which I think is actually a good thing.
2: Yeah, I agree. I don't think it is a a commentary on his sexuality at all. I think it's just something he likes to do. Um, He then talks about one of the women in Marwin, who is a porn star and to Nicole. And she's like, oh, I haven't seen that film.
1: Yes, that's right. (laughs) Really
2: like incongruous visions of this guy who she just met. And she's like you like women's shoes, but then you're naming one of your dolls after a porn star. So it's a little bit hard for her to navigate. Um, yep. So he's very clearly heterosexual. Yes. Um, and not to say that wearing a certain type of clothing makes you one gender or one you know sexual preference over the other. He right. just likes them. He finds them empowering. Yep. I mean,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, no, more power to him. And I think it's, it's interesting in reading about the, uh, real life, um, Mark Hogan camp and some of the experience that he has had. So the aspect of his, uh, trauma, that's accurate. Um, the only thing that was not accurate, as I said before, is that they were not neo-Nazis, but he was assaulted because he sort of shared openly about his cross-dressing habits. So, and it was sad, obviously it is sad that people who, whether they have any, um, atypical gender expression or whatever may be going on, whether it be cross-dressing or or so anything within the LGBTQ spectrum, you know, for them to experience this type of assault, unfortunately, this is something I, w- I won't necessarily. It's common, but certainly the threat of it is something that a lot of people on the spectrum have to deal with. So,
2: yeah. When was this set? Do we know when did the actual accident take place?
1: So, the actual accident happened. I'm going to pull it up. Great Be- question.
2: Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, is there less of an understanding? I mean, I'm sure that these people that beat him up were not as qualified right.
0: <laughs> to discuss,
2: <laughs> right. you know, the nuances of sexual identity and sexuality. Not that I am either. Um, but <laughs> I don't think they were going, well, I wonder what he thinks about in bed.
1: <laughs> right. So I'll just read um, from it's a history versus Hollywood.com article about Welcome to Marwin. This is the true story, which confirms that on April 8th, 2000, five mm. men jumped then 38 year old Mark Hogan Camp outside of the Looney Tunes saloon in Kingston, New York, after he had informed one of them that he liked to dress in both men's and women's clothing. Um, At home, Mark had a closet filled with over 200 pair of women's boots and pumps that he is thought to have worn to feel close to women. He was attracted to women, but was sure they would reject him, which is also sort of a feeling that does come out in the movie. Yeah. So that's what we have. And then he, so we know that he is uh, attracted to women, but also enjoys wearing women's clothes. So the degree to which, you know, that's within the sort of LGBTQ spectrum From what I can tell, there are different feelings about that. But suffice it to say, you know, assaulting someone for being different, no matter the different reasons, obviously, is is a terrible thing to have to happen, because then you have to deal with the consequences of feeling different and being treated the way that you have been for being different.
2: Right. I am jumping tracks a little bit I feel like going back to something you said about how he felt isolated and that they would reject him anyways before the accident which is why he was wearing women's shoes he had been divorced they meant they only show this through like pictures and stuff but that is probably a very traumatic I mean I've been divorced. It's terrible. It's very traumatic. And th- that was probably a very traumatic rejection for him. And he may have had some PTSD elements from that to begin with. And once you've had a PTSD reaction to something, you are much more likely to have a second and more significant PTSD reaction to another traumatic r- event. So it kind of speaks to why this was, of course, that, that alone, isolated trauma is very significant, but compounded by other feelings of rejection or especially from the opposite gender as far as romance goes that kind of makes a little bit more sense about the complexity of the delusions and the isolation and this how he's incapacitated
1: yeah and and to your point in terms of complex trauma you know unfortunately it's it's a difficult thing uh for people to have happen when you know, obviously any major trauma then sort of leaks into other negative experiences that people can have, you know, whether it be something like divorce, rejection of other uh, natures. So, you know, for him, he had a career and as an illustrator, and then obviously wasn't able to do that. So, um, you know, Mike and I have talked about EMDR on the show a couple of times. And EMDR, excuse me, focuses on sort of narrowing down the sort of negative uh, associations people build up about themselves as a result of their trauma. So for Mm -hmm. someone like Mark, you know, divorced, obviously assaulted and the sort of uh, ensuing uh, recovery that it took for him, loss of memory. It would be reasonable for someone in Mark's position to sort of develop this negative association of being unwanted, of being, um, you know, not accepted in, in the real world. So he creates this fictional world so that he could feel not just accepted, but even heroic. And you sort of spoke to that earlier. And I think that's really true. You know, I think his traumatic experiences really sort of like branched out into other aspects of his life.
2: Yeah, just trying to get control over anything because he's felt so out of control with everything that's kind of been put upon him as far as the traumas go.
1: Yeah, so it's a, it's a fascinating story. and And we should clarify that it is based on... Uh, a documentary that was that included a lot of interviews with the real uh Mark Hogan camp. The documentary is called Marwin Call. I'll spell that if it's confusing for people. It's M A R W E N C O L. They shortened it to Marwin I guess because they thought Welcome to Marwin Call wouldn't be as catchy.
2: <laughs> Welcome to Marwin was confusing enough I guess yeah, for people. Yeah. So. <laughs> so I think
1: I'm assuming Mark Marwin Call represented uh Mark wendy colleen who i think was one of the nicole or Or call yes of course call nicole um that makes more sense Um, that's so
2: creepy i'm sorry no i
1: know right exactly uh, um yeah
2: and i feel so guilty about saying that because i just i you know obviously this person feels like they are being judged for what they're doing and here i am going that's so creepy but it's I mean, how do you navigate someone that has PTSD and these really extreme reactions to things? Um, it's it's really hard for people that are not sharing that same experience around you. They don't have that same fight or flight action that you have. Um, you know, I have worked in years for EMS and I have certainly have some things that are like my little hangups. And it's re- it's really weird to explain it to other people of mm. like, why I sleep with a sound machine. And because if I get startled awake, you know, oh man, that adrenaline, it just yep. dumps. Cause I'm ready to go. I mean, that's from 10 years of doing nine one one and being woken up by sirens and, and alarms in the bases. So it's, but other people don't know that, like that you have to right. explain it. And then they're like, Oh man, that's so weird that you do that. And so I feel so bad saying that's creepy, but as a woman, I'm was very creeped out. <laughs>
1: I think that's okay because I think and that's that's one of the other sad things for me as a therapist is, you know, Mark is is very isolated in his home and in uh, Marwin, Right. Right. You know, he has uh, obviously he's a burgeoning artist and it's there's a lot of pressure and questions about, you know, is he going to present his art and how much is he going to, you know, be a person in the world who talks about the work that he does. But, you know, exactly what you're talking about, the sort of social uh, awkwardness, discomfort. Um, those are things that we could really work on in therapy and really help him, you know, to the degree that he would want to reintegrate himself into a community where it's not just, he can, you know, he walks from home to his part-time bar job, you know, to the hobby store and then back, but that he can actually have a, a life that's a little bit bigger than that. Yeah. So, you know, I think if I was to work with someone like Mark, um, in therapy that I I would anticipate that some of those things would be coming up. Now, that's obviously, I guess, a smaller issue in the big picture thing of his PTSD. But sometimes that's what therapy with someone who's experiencing PTSD is about is, yes, they have the sort of big picture past trauma, but they're also just trying to live a life.
2: And they feel very different from the people that are around them. Right. And it's like, I don't fit in my clothes around these people, especially I talk a lot about first responder PTSD on my podcast and, and veterans, and it's, you know, not everyone has PTSD, but if you're around people that you had done those actions with or experienced similar traumas with, you're very comfortable. But then, you know, I go out and I talk about crazy bloody EMS stories with my gallows humor. I know I don't fit in with, you know, the accountants of the world. I'm going to weird them out with that story. And sometimes sometimes if you've only interacted with those people, you don't know how to interact with other types of people. And then you're like, I'm more isolated and now I'm angry because no one gets me. They don't understand what I've been through. And you're just like, well, screw them. And it's kind of this can be this vicious cycle for some people. Or that they just stand at a party and they're drinking and then that's makes it even worse.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's so that's well said. And actually I, I well wanna <laughs> I wanna connect that. Back to Mark, who I, I want to read a quote from his documentary, because I think what we'll do is um, I'll read this and we'll jump into our reviews of the movie okay. in general. OK, so so to kind of speak to exactly what you're talking about, Mark Camp in the documentary says the following. I still really miss somebody to talk to about the way I feel. My mind can't decide what world to go for. Realistic world, but there are dangers out there. People out there are so real, and I don't understand all that. I feel safe when I get in my town, and it just takes everything away. I prefer to live in my world. I want to live here in Marwenkalt. So that is a very clear expression of someone who doesn't feel comfortable in society. Exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, people don't get him and he doesn't really get people.
2: Yeah. And that's terrifying for yeah. him. That's I mean, and that's just reinforcing the desire to go to Marwin call. Yeah. For him. And that's he needs a good therapist to break him out of that. <laughs> Some EMDR. And yeah, I think so. Reprocessing those memories and realizing that people are not as scary because he's truly surrounded by some incredibly patient and empathetic people that most people with PTSD are not surrounded by. I mean, he doesn't have a family, but that town is very, very supportive of him.
1: Yeah. And I think so. And we'll, maybe we'll wrap up on this and that, you know, the most important thing for people who are, whether they're recovering from PTSD or, or, you know, honestly, dealing with any type of of mental illness, that the community support is really important. You know, having people that can understand and validate and support, you know, how a person is taking care of themselves, even if in like Mark's case, it's a little bit different from, you know, how most people might take care of themselves is such a huge deal. I think most people might watch this movie and say, man, Mark's really struggling. But for me, I watched this and, and it Kind of feels in some ways like a success story. I mean, it is. It's it's a happy story in the end. He's going to work. He's going to work, and and he did end up appearing in court and and doing his whole victim uh, statement. Yeah, yeah. So he he is recovering now. The question is to what degree and how much is the any ongoing dissociation still a problem for him? You know, from what I've read about the real life Mark, he's you know on disability gets. A little bit of money, it seems like, from things like his artwork and his documentary, but but is, you know, still struggling. Um, it's a, yeah. He lives by himself in a small house in a rural town in Kingston, New York. And it's it's not an easy life, you know, just because a movie has been created based on you, things right. will magically become all better, um, especially for people with PTSD. So so that's Welcome Tomorrow. And so, Christine, usually I uh, review a movie based on its sort of accuracy in how it depicts whatever uh, mental health issue is being depicted. Mm -hmm. And Mike does just a general review based on how much he enjoyed the movie. Okay. But if you are comfortable, since you are our resident expert in PTSD, I wonder (laughs) if you would (laughs) mind uh, reviewing this based on the sort of accuracy and some of the uh, maybe patients that you've worked with. And then I'll just do a general um, how much I like this movie uh, review.
2: Okay. Okay. Um, do I have to pick an object or are we doing stars?
1: Um, you can do either. If you have a particular thing that you like from the movie, a particular reference. I'll
2: do dolls. Great. <laughs> um, so I, for accuracy alone, I would say it's it's probably like a 4.5 out of 5 dolls. Just because I th- obviously this is his true experience. This is really what he went through. I think the dissociations are hyped up a bit. Uh, Again, the medication thing is not super accurate um, and (laughs) I don't think many communities are going to be that supportive, but I mean, everyone is going to manifest in their own way, but I do think those dissociations are pretty extreme. Now, granted, he had very significant head trauma with memory loss. So, I mean, that may be playing into it as well, but for the most part, yeah, very, very accurate in the PTSD respect in a way that it can manifest not the way that it manifests for everyone. Everyone is very, very different in their level of functioning, especially the way that the trauma that they experienced.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I thought it was interesting, you know, on on the show, Mike and I talk a lot about how, you know, to make movies about mental health interesting, there's always this sort of liberty taken with dramatizing the sort of experience of some of the symptoms. So talking about something like A Beautiful Mind where, They really like color in and dramatize the uh, hallucinations. Um, And and now in Welcome to Marwen, we have these like intense CGI versions of his dolls as if that is what Mark is picturing in his, whether it's just visualization or even in the more dramatic dissociations that he might be experiencing. You know, I'm assuming that that's not exactly true to life in terms of what the Mark uh, is experiencing.
2: Yeah, it wouldn't be a very good movie to just watch himself loathing and kind of n- dismotivated to do anything, and then tossing and turning on the couch because he can't sleep any night.
1: Well, <laughs> it's yeah, it's interesting. So yes, it would be it'd be less CGI and less, less dramatic. Cinematic. But I think it would be on on one hand, like I, especially the courtroom scene, which was like really dramatic. Oh, now he's picturing the guns. Like for me, I almost and maybe they filmed it and didn't didn't just decide not to use it this way. But I would have been really interested to see the version of the scene that you know just what the judge was seeing maybe so mark starts to have this experience this dissociation and what it looks like for someone who's dissociating to to have you know what might look like to some other people as like a panic attack or 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 a hallucination where he gets down on the ground and sort of army crawls down the aisle and out the door and runs away that would be really uh I mean, sad and and scary maybe to watch, but it would also be probably more accurate for to to have, you know, people experience what that would be like to to be with someone who is having that experience.
2: Right. It's a changing of the mask. You see someone all of a sudden just morph into survival mode and you don't understand why and you don't understand how to comfort them. And that's always very, very awkward for people that are around and that's not the social norms. And all of a sudden this person is just in absolute fight or flight and he's, he's fleeing. And so no one else can understand it. They're not having that response. So I think it would take a very, very, phenomenal actor to show that on their face i don't know that steve carell has that range
1: fair point yeah Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) but uh, there definitely are actors that can and it's it would have been you're right very fascinating just to see how he is perceived by people that don't necessarily know him although obviously the judge would be sympathetic but of course yeah it's i think that would always be even scarier just to see what he looks like as not the hero. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So so yeah. So so thank you for you know, explanation because I think it's it's true that that would be a if it was a more accurate depiction that it, you know, there are probably reasons why they didn't do it that way. And maybe it was because <laughs> of Steve Carell. So that that leads me to my uh review just in terms of how entertaining this movie was. Um if you haven't seen this movie obviously we've spoiled 99% of it, but in general, I thought this was a pretty enjoyable movie. I had not seen it when it came out because my Sort of expectation of it, what is it? Was that it was going to be, you know, like some of Steve Carell's other recent pseudo drama, pseudo comedy work? You know, I'm I'm reminded of uh, Beautiful Boy, which was another drama, uh, less comedy, certainly in Beautiful Boy. But Steve Carell, you know, dove into this mental illness, uh, mental health issue. That one being addiction, or at least the the parent of an addictive child, and. He's, he's got good range, but it, this was hard to watch sometimes and not necessarily because of his portrayal, but because of the just sort of confusing nature of what was being portrayed and sort of how it, it was hard to know what was real and what was inside uh, the character's head. I think that was what was hard for me, just watching it as a viewer sometimes. Yeah. So um, all that being said, um, it was pretty entertaining. Um, more, I liked it more than I thought I would. So to that degree, <laughs> I will give it four out of five uh let's just say uh gi joes (laughs) (laughs) yeah so that is our review and i'm sure we could talk about this movie for another hour but we will spare our listeners uh any more (laughs) conversation about steve carell and ptsd and i will just say thank you christine so much for coming on with us today
2: yeah absolutely thank you so much for having me and getting to dissect this movie that was so much fun again
1: and where can our listeners find you, um, whether it be social media or, or just in general?
2: Yeah, so Antidote Stories in Medicine is on Facebook. Uh, Twitter is Antidotes Pod. Instagram is Antidotes Podcast. Uh, you can always send me an email at antidotespodcast at gmail.com if for some reason you wanted to reach out but yeah check out the podcast Uh, we do talk a little bit about PTSD um, my experiences with EMS and other paramedics and EMTs and just a whole range of different people so yeah take a listen if you like
1: yes everyone should take a listen it's a fantastic podcast and uh, thank you again Christine for coming on with us today thanks so much And now for some closing thoughts on the 2018 movie, Welcome to Marlin. First of all, even though insurance can be a barrier to getting treatment, it doesn't mean resources aren't available to you or anyone suffering from mental illness. As Mark shows, we are capable of building our own coping skills, but we often need support from the community as well. It's important to notice when that support is being offered and staying open to the people who are willing to help. As we've identified on the show before, trauma can have a lasting impact on people and their ability to cope with the world around them. When coping with trauma, it's incredibly important to identify your triggers, and if you're able, to communicate those triggers and corresponding needs to those around you. Finally, the stories we tell about ourselves and the world around us do matter. Whether those stories we keep to ourselves, the stories we make art out of, or the stories that hold us back because we think we aren't good enough or can't overcome our past, we need to be able to create new stories and frameworks that allow us the chance to grow and succeed. If there's one thing I think we can take away from Mark Hogan Camp, it is that anyone can make themselves the hero in their own story. Thank you so much for listening to our show. I have to thank Christine from the Antidotes, Stories, and Medicine podcast for filling in for us today. Please check out her podcast, I also have to thank Kevin McLeod for our music. You can find his music and more resources on incompetech.com. Thank you, as always, to my co-host and executive producer, Mike Graham. If you like the show, please check out our social media pages. We are everywhere at Pop Psych 101. We also love hearing from our listeners, so if you want to give feedback or suggest something for us to cover, you can email us at poppsych101 at gmail.com or join our Facebook group. Pop Psych 101 is on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us share these discussions about mental health, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you listen. For Mike Graham, I'm Ryan Engelstad. Thanks for listening to Pop Psych 101.